if I am. You can hear me all right. Great. Thank you ever so much for that reading. That was lovely, really helpful. Um, it was a powerful song we've just sung, wasn't it? Um, very personal uh, and very powerful. Uh, and we thank God for that. Um, but I, I actually found myself thinking in that second verse, which talked about being held in that place that was close to despair. Uh, we've got a bit wet this morning, haven't we? Um, but actually, isn't COP20, whatever it is, um, opening this morning, the, the Climate Change Initiative? I, and I just found myself thinking of all those people across the world who are in despair. Uh, because they're having more than just rather too much rain like we are. Uh, but, but yet, is there not a promise from God in that too, that he is there in the midst of these overwhelming situations, just as he is there with us in those very deep and personal places I in our lives? Um, it, it just came to me quite powerfully while we were singing. And uh, yes, we continue, Lord, we pray for that gathering. Pray for your inspiration and pray that you will open doors of hope where, humanly speaking, some people see very few. But back to Acts chapter 11. Um, and I wonder whether, uh, is there anybody here this morning who um, comes from a Jewish family, who has Jewish heritage? Uh, somebody on, on Zoom, maybe. No, nobody here. It's not surprising, really. But actually, it's a wonderful heritage to have, isn't it? I, I could actually find myself being quite envious of Jewish background believers, Messianic Jews, whatever title you want to use. Because the truth is that the church was born in the Jewish world and in a Jewish culture. And the thing we don't realize is how easily the church could have become trapped within that Jewish culture, become nothing more than a sect within Judaism and never reached the rest of this world that God so loves and that Jesus died for. Those of us here this morning who don't come from a Jewish background, we're part of what the Jewish leaders would regard as the unclean, where the great Gentile unwashed and we don't realize how much we have to be grateful to the Apostle Peter for. Peter, who was prepared to obey the call of God to move out of the safety of his Jewish culture into uncharted territory so that God could release his life-changing grace to people like us. This morning, as we look at Acts chapter 11, we're going to look at how that happened. We'll look at it through the eyes of Peter and then through the eyes of the church back in Jerusalem. So firstly, through the eyes of Peter, Peter who saw heaven opened. So hold on to your seats as we funnel back through the centuries and land in Joppa, Gosh, doesn't the weather look nice there? In the middle of a hot Mediterranean day. And it does have some attractions on a day like today. And in Joppa, Peter's up on the roof in the shade of an awning praying, while downstairs they're making lunch. Now, being an apostle's hungry work and the smell of food is making Peter even hungrier. And we're told he falls into a trance. He slips into that space between sleeping and being fully awake, and he sees a vision. 
Peter saw heaven opened. And when you look at the picture, yes, I have to confess, I pray like that too sometimes. Peter saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. The problem was that that sheet that was lowered from heaven contained all the wrong sorts of meat. Would you believe it? There wasn't even a single kosher item on the menu. And as his stomach rumbled and his conscience shouted, no way, a voice told Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And from the depth of Peter's being comes this visceral cry, no, Lord. All his life, from his mother's knee, Peter's been taught not to eat that sort of food. It's just wrong. No, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Then the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call impure what God has made clean. And this happened three times. And each time, Peter maybe took it in a bit more. And then the sheet was taken back up into heaven. At that moment, three men arrived from Caesarea. They're Romans, unclean Gentiles, looking for Peter. And Peter hears the Spirit's voice in his spirit. Do not hesitate to go with them. So he goes down and he asks what they want. And they explain that they've come from Cornelius, a righteous and God-fearing man, a Roman centurion who'd also had a vision in which he was told to invite Peter to come to his house to share what he had to say, to share the good news of Jesus with them. Now it's getting late and it's more than a day's journey to Caesarea. And this is where if I was Peter, I would be having a quick look around to see who was watching because Peter invites them in to stay for the night. And that alone in this Jewish community would have caused more than a few eyebrows to be raised. But that's nothing to what happens next. Because the following morning, Peter and six of the brothers set out with these messages, with these messengers for Caesarea, and they enter Cornelius's house the house of an unclean Gentile. Peter's stepping into an environment that's utterly alien to him. As alien to him as it, as it is to me, oh, I, I don't know if I accidentally step into the gent's loo, you know? Do you know that feeling, any of you? The other way around, maybe. And Cornelius is not only an unclean Gentile, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's part of the enemy, part of the hated foreign army of occupation that were oppressing Peter's people. And Peter shares the good news of Jesus. And even before he's finished, just as he begins speaking, the Holy Spirit falls. And we have what some people call the Gentile Pentecost. God pours out his spirit, the doors to God's kingdom are thrown wide, and people like us are welcomed home into the embrace of God. And it's all because Peter 
was willing to obey the call of God to venture out into uncharted waters. But as we listen to this episode afresh this morning, it leaves us with a whole number of questions, doesn't it? But it leaves us with the question, where do we find ourselves saying, no, Lord? Where do we find ourselves reacting from the gut? A number of years ago, I was um, asked by a church to sit in on one of their church meetings because they wanted to discuss the uncomfortable possibility of having women elders. And I, as a, a local woman minister, was invited in in case I had anything to share. I'm not even sure I would go these days, to be honest. Um, now, it was, it, it's an important question and one that people genuinely struggle with and genuinely struggle with. Um, and it was a good meeting. And people shared their questions, they shared their convictions, they shared the different way they understood the Bible and what the Bible has to say. But the thing I, I really remember from that evening was one older Greek lady who stood up and in great distress said, no, it's just wrong. The man should be the head. That's how it should be. It just has to be that way. It's just wrong. And, you know, I, I listened to her. And I thought, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm, I'm not going to argue with something that runs so deep in you. I totally and utterly respect how you feel. And I would fight for the right of people who do not believe in women leaders to be equally part of the church with others who, who, who read the Bible differently. But long ago, I decided I wasn't going to get caught up in arguing the case for women in leadership, partly because it feels like self-justification, and that doesn't feel right. But most of all, because it is God who has got me into this. And if God has got me into it, then it's up to God to authenticate it or not. And I'm saying that because this week, as I read this passage again, I realized that that was the approach the Apostle Peter took when he was called in by the leaders in the Jerusalem church to defend what he'd done. We've looked at this passage through the eyes of Peter, but let's look at it for a minute through the eyes of the church. You know, it's easy to be critical of the church in Jerusalem, but I've a lot of sympathy with them. They had a strong and a right sense of the need for the church to be distinctive in how it lived. And they were worried that letting Gentiles into the church without getting them to accept things like circumcision could lead to a loss of the distinctive nature of Christ's new community. And those are not only understandable, they are right concerns. The church wants to hear from Peter what he's been doing. And notice, would you, Peter doesn't come with a whole series of arguments. He comes with a story, a story of what God has done. He tells them of the vision and the voice from heaven, he tells them how, at the same time, miles up the road in Caesarea, the centurion Cornelius also had a vision. 
He told them about the messengers and the falling of the Spirit, just as he had come upon us at the beginning. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think, says Peter, that I could oppose God? And to their eternal credit, the leaders of the Mother Church, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And then this situation that God had brought into their midst sent them back to the Bible, sent them back to their scriptures. It sent them back to rediscover something that had got lost in their understanding of who they were and what they were for. It sent them back to Father Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, who many, had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. Yes, it sent them back to Father Abraham, whom God had chosen and called for what purpose? You go back to the, the story in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It sent them back to the prophet Isaiah, to that passage we'll be hearing again at Christmas, where God says to his people, it is as too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Judah and to restore the survivors of Israel. No, I will give you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, they weren't being asked to be less biblical. They were being asked to be more biblical. And as they search the scriptures, God reminds them who they are and what he has called them for. They were called for the sake of the world. Archbishop William Temple said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. And we're called, as Peter was called, to venture out. We're called to follow Peter as he follows Jesus out into the world, the world God loves and so longs for out to seek those who are lost to his love. Oh, my people, do you not feel the pain in my heart for those around you who are lost to my love? And it's important to notice here that Peter ventured out, out of where he felt comfortable to receive hospitality, from these others, these outsiders. Peter didn't just offer hospitality, but he made himself vulnerable by receiving hospitality from a Gentile, stepping into a place that was for him a very new and a very uncomfortable place. But when we think about it, isn't that exactly what God did in sending Jesus? God didn't just stay in heaven being incredibly welcoming, though he is that. He sent his only son out to receive hospitality or not from the world that he so loves 
and so longs for. We've explored this episode through Peter's eyes and through the eyes of the church, but the main player in the action here, of course, is God, the living God, calling and shaping and leading his people deeper into the whole reason for their existence which is to make God and his love known to every man, woman, and child across this world. The church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. God calls Peter to venture out into uncharted territory. And as he does, he discovers that God is already at work out there. God has been at work in Cornelius, a God-fearing man who gave generously to those in need, someone seeking after God, but someone who would not have come to know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ unless a shocked and surprised Christian had been willing to step out of his comfort zone in order to travel on to Cornelius's home turf. Does anybody know who that is? Russell Brand. Now I bet you don't often have a picture of Russell Brand in church, do you? Russell Brand, for those of you who don't know him, is a, a comedian and an activist. And we don't often see his picture in church because he's best known really for his shocking language and equally shocking lifestyle. But he's a voice that lots of people out there listen to. He certainly was as our kids were growing up. Back about five years ago now, Russell Brand gave an interview to a Christian lifestyle magazine called Relevant, which uh, explores the intersection between faith and pop culture. The article was entitled, The Second Coming of Russell Brand. And in his interview, Russell Brand said this, my personal feeling is the teachings of Christ are more relevant now than ever before. Surprised? Indeed, he suggests that every man who knocks on a brothel door, he's looking for God. Those comments arise out of his own experience with its share of addiction to drink and drugs and sex and food and fame. And the article concludes, when asked about taking the first step to recovery from addiction, Brand, who has thought about recovery every day for more than a decade, offers this advice for those wanting to get clean spiritually and physically. Admit you have a problem, believe it's possible to change, and ask him for help. Invite him in. Capital H's, of course. Those comments from an unlikely and maybe shocking source are a vivid reminder that God is at work in this world he so loves and that people are hungry for something more and for something real. And God is calling his people, calling us to remember what we're here for. 
Haywood Seath Baptist Church, the Church of Jesus Christ, we are here to venture out to be part of the work God is doing, his work of embracing his world in his redeeming, healing, life-giving love. Will we go? It's a stark question, isn't it? You know, I'm really tempted to ask whether you'd want the Apostle Peter as your next minister, would I? Peter ventured out. So where's God asking us to venture out personally as a church? Before we moved to London back in 1990, we had seven or eight years at a lovely church in Surly Hull on the southern edge of Birmingham, the West Midlands. It was a church very like Hayward Seath Baptist Church. We had a lovely mix of ages, lots of families. It was a great place to bring up our boys. We went through a period at church when all the sermons, including the ones that my Peter and I preached, were about God calling us to take risks. God wanting his church to take risks. And I have to tell you, they are great sermons to preach. But I can still remember the feeling when we realized that it was us God was calling to take what felt like a big risk of moving with our boys to South London, to the sort of area most families, if they can, move their children out of. But I have to tell you that that place that we were reluctant to go to, that place to which we went out of a grim sense of obedience, was a place that was rich in blessing beyond belief and a place that it broke my heart when it was time to leave. We are perverse, aren't we? Not believing that when God challenges us, it's for our blessing as well as the blessing of others. But, you know, I can still remember that feeling. I can still feel it in my gut when it began to, go, to, to dawn that God was asking us not to talk about taking a risk, but to actually do it. Oh, my people, do you not feel the pain in my heart for those around you who are lost to my love? Do we? Will we? Lord, what is the next frontier you have for me, for us, to cross? As we allow God's Spirit to search our hearts and our lives, as we're honest with God about our struggles to obey, we're going to remain seated and, and sing a song. And the musicians will begin to move up, ready for that, I'm sure. To sing a song that expresses our longing for a faith that's deeper and for a trust that can respond to God's call. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let's remain seated and sing.